The word dharma in Sanskrit, <coughs> or dhamma in Pali, <coughs> means truth, means the law, it means natural law, the way of things, you know, the way things are. And Buddha Dhamma means the Buddha's teaching about these very universal truths. Well, actually, the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. He taught the Dharma. He taught about the truth. He taught about the nature of things. <coughs> and the heart of the Buddha's teachings is his understanding of what frees the mind from habits, the long-established habits of suffering, what frees the mind from the habits of envy, of jealousy, of greed, how we can free the mind (coughs) from the habits of fear, of hatred, of anger. And all the practices that we do the practices of generosity, of loving-kindness, of compassion, of concentration, of mindfulness. All of the practices have as their aim this experience of freedom. So the question tonight that I'd like to address is how in the busyness (coughs) of our lives you know, with our cares and responsibilities. In the busyness of our lives in the world, how can we stay on track? Keeping connected both to the possibilities of, but also the actual experience of freedom. What would that look like in our lives? There are two great wings of the Dharma. The wings of wisdom and compassion. And we need both of these on our great flight of awakening. Without wisdom, we may have a deep and abiding compassion for the suffering in the world. But without wisdom, we won't have an incisive and comprehensive understanding of the causes of that suffering. And so we won't really have (coughs) very effective means for alleviating it. So compassion needs wisdom to be effective. Well, we may have wisdom and insight into the nature of suffering, but without compassion, we won't have the motivation to act, to actually do something about it. So this evening, I'd like to consider the different ways we can develop or train ourselves in wisdom and in compassion. The clear seeing of wisdom comes from the investigating power of the mind. Susan spoke the other night about the factors of enlightenment 
the second one being investigation of the Dhamma. That's the wisdom factor. It's the quality of the mind that looks and explores and sees what it is that is going on. And there's a beautiful saying that expresses the tremendous power of wisdom. The light of a single candle dispels the darkness of 10,000 years. So no matter how lost we are in our delusion and in our ignorance and for however long, the light of a single moment of understanding, the light of a single moment of wisdom dispels the darkness of that confusion. So it's tremendously powerful. In one very far-reaching but often overlooked aspect, we deepen our wisdom through a direct experience and investigation of impermanence. Now what's interesting about this is that we all know (coughs) about impermanence and change on an intellectual level. I mean, this is not an esoteric teaching. You know, if you go to the streets of New York or any place and ask anybody, do things change? Everybody will say yes. But it's quite amazing that we can know this so confidently and so completely on a conceptual, intellectual level, but somehow we don't live that insight. And so we have to draw it down, we have to bring it down somehow from our conceptual level of understanding to the direct, immediate, intimate perception of it so that it actually becomes a living wisdom. When we can truly and deeply see and recognize and accept the truth of change in the moment of actually seeing it so that it is real for us, the heart and the mind relax in the moment of direct perception of change, of the truth of change, the heart relaxes, the mind relaxes, and we find ourselves letting go of many kinds of struggles and many kinds of suffering. We can see this so clearly with respect to the changes of our bodies. Now, if we're attached to our bodies staying a certain way, it's not good news. (laughs) (laughs) If we're attached to them staying a certain way, then when they change, either through accidents, through disease, through the simple process of getting older, we suffer. It's so clear and it's so obvious. But somehow it's very difficult 
to see and understand then that these changes are not a mistake. You know, it's not some great cosmic trick that's being played on us. It's also difficult to see and to really understand that these changes are not our fault. It's not that we've done something wrong, you know, as the body changes or decays or ages. It's just the nature of things. This is how things are for everyone. You know, in being with my mother over these last years, and especially the last months, kind of these teachings about change and impermanence were so vivid. And she was really quite amazing. When I came back from India and started teaching, um, she did a few retreats. She was very open to the practice. And she never actually became a great meditator, but... You know, she was exposed to it, and she said, you know, she would spend a few minutes every day watching her breath. And but I think she had a very uh, innate uh, pragmatism. She was always tremendously realistic about life and change and what was happening, which was a great teaching for me in my life, but also seeing it in action in these last years and months was quite uh, inspiring for me. You know, at a certain point, and she was well into her 80s, and, you know, her, her vision was getting poor, and she saw that, and she said, I need to give up my driver's license. She saw she couldn't drive anymore, so she just, okay, she just gave it up. She began to get weaker. She said... I need to go into one of these graduated care places. You know, so she moved herself in. It was very easy for us. <laughs> yeah, because she was just so pragmatic and so honest about these truth of changes. In the last year or so, she was actually being sustained by transfusions because of a, a blood condition. And at a certain point, they were getting so frequent, she said, you know, there's enough of this. <laughs> This is, the body is clearly shutting down. It's time just to let go. And so she decided to stop taking transfusions. She became weaker. She saw she needed to go into a nursing home, part of the facility. She just checked herself in. I was, it was just so amazing. This completely realistic understanding of the truth of change. It, this is what happens. And to see... The response to that without clinging, without grasping, you know, without wanting things to stay a certain way when they weren't, it created a lot of ease and a lot of peace, not only for her, but also for the people around her. Seeing and recognizing and accepting the truth of these changes in our lives again, which are universal. They just happen and are happening to all of us. It deconditions this insight and connection, the intimate connection with the truth of change deconditions the habit patterns in the mind of clinging, of grasping, of attachment. And in this way, it becomes the doorway to freedom. We see that there is nothing to hold on to. 
that the law of nature is change. But what's so amazing in our lives, and it's so um, illustrative of the seductive power of the world, is that when we look back at our experience, when we look at all our past experience, it's so clear, I think, to all of us how ephemeral it is. You know, where are the experiences of the first days of the retreat? They're completely gone. You had the highs, the lows, when you were feeling great, when you were feeling terrible. Where are they now? You know, it's completely gone. You think back over the last year, the last five years, the last ten years. So this is not hard to understand. When we look back at our experience, it's so clear. The the dreamlike nature of experience, the ephemeral, impermanent nature. But what's so bizarre (laughs) is that even though we know this, when we turn our attention from looking back at our experience to looking ahead to our experience, again and again we're just dazzled by the array of possibilities. You know, fascinated by the next hit of experience, the next event in our lives, as if that's what will finally make us happy. Although nothing until now has done it. <laughs> so why do we think that the next thing is going to do it? It's this, it's this quirk of our minds. And so for most of us, this is what we keep doing in our lives, you know, looking forward, leaning forward, anticipating the next event, the next situation, the next project, the next relationship, the next vacation, the next whatever, the next meal. And even, we can see it in the meditation practice, even anticipating, leading forward into the next breath. Didn't quite get it on this breath, maybe the next one. (laughs) So it's the same process of looking ahead. You know, in your time here, have you fantasized at all about the first thing you'll do when you leave the retreat? You know, just in those moments where it's a little boring or a little tired or whatever, oh, when I get out of here, you know, <laughs> meeting with your partner or your family or having your favorite food or sleeping in your own bed or whatever, whatever your fantasy may be. And yet all those things are going to soon be past. They're not going to really do it either. So somehow we have to coordinate what we know deeply when we look back at our past experience with what happens when we look ahead to experience. So we can actually be with both with that same sense of non-clinging, non-grasping, (coughs) non-attachment. There's a certain illuminating paradox of the spiritual life. 
And that is that as objects of desire, as objects of wanting, all of these changing experiences of our lives leave us ultimately unfulfilled. Why? Because they're changing. They don't last. It's not because they aren't pleasant. They are pleasant. We have lots of pleasant experiences. And we enjoy that aspect. But they're not ultimately fulfilling because they change. They don't last. And so we're always seeking the next one and the next one and the next one. So as objects of desire, they don't really do it for us. But when we make these very same experiences the objects of mindfulness, of awareness, then the very same pleasant sights and sounds and tastes and smells and sensations and thoughts, and the very same experiences, if we make them objects of mindfulness rather than objects of desire, actually become the vehicle of our awakening. So we need to readjust the way we're relating to experience. It's not pulling back from it. It's actually bringing wisdom to it. So insight into impermanence deepens in several ways. Wisdom into impermanence can deepen by paying attention to the truth of change in ways that we already know, that are very obvious to us. And then we just look about in the world and we see it all around us, the changes in nature, you know, the changes of the seasons, the change of weather, climate changes, you know, on a big scale. We see changes in the whole evolution of species, you know, and then the extinction of species. All of that is part just of the truth of change. <clears throat> we see the changes in society, you know, on a collective level. When we are open, when we pay attention, we see you know, the, the rise and fall of civilizations and cultures. And it's amazing how, even though we can understand this through all the millennia of history, somehow when we're in the middle of our own, we lose sight of that. You know, all civilizations and cultures arise and pass. On a personal level, people being born, people living their lives, people dying. You know, it's wonderful here in New England as you walk through the woods because these are, these are all second growth, you know, or third growth uh, forests. And so often you walk through the woods and you just see these old stone foundations, just the foundations, you know, of old stone houses or old stone walls, miles and miles and miles. And you see these remnants of houses and you can just imagine all the lives and activities that will live there and what's left. Just a few stones, you know, as a foundation. The impermanence is so... Uh, clear. We see the changing nature of our relationships, you know, the people we're closest to. See the changes in our work. And most intimately, of course, when we observe carefully, we see the changes in our own bodies and minds. 
careful observation of this, careful observation of obvious truths, can sometimes startle us out of the complacency of our lives. You know, where we really do stop and look and see, well, what is this whole question of life and death? It's so easy just to be carried along in the momentum of our work and our activities and everything we're engaged in. And basically, the Buddha's message is, stop, take a look. See what is actually going on. See what is the truth of our lives. And of course, the truth of change is so profound. There's one very simple and um, deep reflection about something that is very obvious, and yet we don't often deeply reflect on it. And that is that the end of birth is death. I mean, this is just the truth. It's not a problem. It's just how things are. It's the Dharma. It's nature. It's the law. Our lives are only getting shorter and shorter. It's like our lives are running out from the time of birth. We seem to notice this more as we get older, but it's actually true for everyone all along. But often our awareness of death, it seems limited to other people. You know, it's other people who are dying. And we don't that often kind of bring it home and and meditate on the fact of our own death. And this is one of this is one of the basic teachings of the Buddha. It's one of the basic uh, reflections and meditations. You know, in our society, reflecting on death, talking about death, it's a downer. You know, people think it's a bit morbid, and why would you want to talk about that? I had a very interesting experience. Just uh, again, this goes back to. Uh, my mother's last hours. Uh, so after after she actually died, I was just sitting with the body, and there was a little bit of activity around the nurses coming in. But but I had a, a few hours just to kind of be there, and then the people from the nursing home came, uh, the funeral home, you know, to kind of take the body to the funeral home. And one of the attendants who was you know, trying to take care of me. Uh, as, as the funeral home attendants were moving the body from the bed to the gurney, you know, to, to take out to the, to the van, this attendant said, maybe you don't want to watch that. And I looked and I said, it's okay, this is my business. <laughs> I'm in the business of birth and death. And <laughs> And it was just one of those moments. <laughs> and it was so striking. Well, you don't want to see that. You know, well, why not? You know, this is just the truth. This, this is what happens. But there's so much in our culture which, you know, tries to protect us from it or, or keep 
the awareness of it from us. Those of you of a certain age <coughs> might remember uh, the books of Carlos Castaneda you know, and the teachings of Don Juan. I don't know whether they're still read or not, but there was some... This is the story of a, uh, uh, a Mexican Indian shaman and uh, his American disciple, Carlos, um, so Don Juan was the <clears throat> the shaman, and there's some wonderful teachings in in, the, in these books. <clears throat> so I just want to read this one piece. Some of you may be familiar with this because it's it's really a classic uh, section. So this is Carlos writing. Don Juan asked me to tell him what had been the most natural reaction I had in moments of stress frustration and disappointment before I became an apprentice to him. He said that his own reaction had been wrath. I told him that mine had been self-pity. This is Don Juan speaking. Although you are not aware of it, you had to work your head off to make that feeling a natural one. By now there is no way for you to recollect the immense effort that you needed to establish self-pity as a feature of your island. Self-pity bore witness to everything you did. It was just at your fingertips, ready to advise you. Death is considered by a warrior to be a more amenable advisor, which can also be brought to bear witness on everything one does, just like self-pity or wrath. Obviously, after an untold struggle, you had learned to feel sorry for yourself. But you can also learn in the same way to feel your impending end. And thus you can learn to have the idea of your death at your fingertips. As an advisor, self-pity is nothing in comparison to death. it's, It's such a pointed teaching about the power of this reflection. So just as an experiment sometime, and maybe sometime while, while you're still on retreat in, the, in this quiet space, take some time where you, as vividly as possible, imagine yourself on your deathbed. You know, and we've given ourselves a little something there, like a nice, comfortable bed. <laughs> I mean, we don't really know when death will come, but okay, we've given ourselves a bed. But try to vividly imagine that, okay, this, you know, this is really the end. You know, the body is dying. You know, and, and try to imagine that and feel what that might be like. And particularly with regard... To what is the mind doing? What are the attachments? What are we holding on to at that time? Is there fear at that prospect? Do we fear letting go? And if so, what is the fear about? We can explore this. We can ask these questions now. What is it that we would be most attached to? What is it that we're afraid of? 
what is it that at that time would be of most value to us? We really do need to ask these questions now, and this is the training, and in some way all of our meditation we could see as a training, a practice for dying. Because as we practice letting go right now in every moment of attachment, of clinging, of holding on, we are in the process of freeing ourselves. We can also deepen our insight and our understanding of the truth of change and impermanence from a very close and careful observation of change on momentary levels. Of course, this is one of the possibilities that opens up very much on a meditation retreat. As we settle down, become quieter, strengthen the mindfulness, strengthen the concentration, we can begin to see the momentariness of phenomena. Again, it's another experiment, if you can remember between now and the end of the talk, when you leave the hall. Just as you get up to leave the hall, just pay attention to the changing nature of your experience, moment to moment. You know, the different colors and forms that are passing, the different sounds coming and going, the different sensations in the body, you know, the different thoughts that might arise. Just watch, even from the very simple action of you know, getting up from sitting and walking out the hall and going to your walking space, just in that interval, so many different things have happened. So this is possible for us to observe you know, in a very clear way. Experience keeps changing. It's like water over a waterfall. Have you ever sat by a waterfall and just watched you know, just the endless, ceaseless flow of water? Well, our mind-body experience is just like that. It's ceaselessly, endlessly changing in a very microscopic way, moment after moment. We can see it even in one breath or one step, or one sound. You know, a breath is not one thing. Even half a breath is not half a thing. (laughs) I mean, each half breath, each whole... There are so many moments of sensation. You know, or when we hear a sound... How many oscillations or vibrations are happening in one sound? The problem is that the truth of this flow of change, this waterfall, this cascade of experience is so ordinary that we mostly overlook it. We just don't stop to pay attention to this truth. And so we miss the opportunity because we're not paying attention. We we are missing the opportunity to abide and to cultivate 
the non-grasping mind. Because in the moment of the direct perception of change, when we're actually seeing it, feeling it, experiencing it, the mind is not holding on. Because we see there's nothing to hold on to. What grows from this ground of wisdom, the seeing of change on all of these levels, externally, on a macro level, on a micro level, internally, what grows from this field of wisdom is the rare flower of what in Buddhism is called bodhicitta. And these are Pali and Sanskrit words. Bodhi means awaken enlightenment, wisdom. And jitta means heart. So bodhicitta literally means the awakened heart. But it's usually referred, refers to that aspiration to awaken, to become liberated, to become free for the benefit of all beings. That's usually what bodhicitta refers to. And all the compassionate activity that comes from that motivation. So it's out of wisdom that bodhicitta, that compassion grows. What is compassion? When we look at that feeling, when we investigate the nature of compassion, we see that the quality of that feeling is the strong wish, the strong motivation to alleviate suffering, to alleviate the suffering of beings kind of is expressed in the phrase, in response to situations of suffering, compassion would say, how can I help? How can I help alleviate this? And this feeling arises when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering. That's the cause for compassion to arise. And we come close to suffering, both our own and others. But this is a difficult and profound practice. We may want to be compassionate and maybe feel that at many times we often are. But many times it's not all that easy, even if we hold it as a value. Because just as we find it difficult at times to be with our own pain, as you've seen, you know, you're sitting in meditation and something simple like a pain in the knee and a pain in the back comes, is your first response, oh good, let me come close to it? Probably not. Just as we find it difficult to open genuinely to our own pain, we often find it difficult to to genuinely open to the pain of others. There are very strong tendencies in the mind, conditioned tendencies, that keep us defended from the experience of suffering, or indifferent, or apathetic. 
I just want to mention a few of my very favorite stories in this regard. Some of you oldies probably have heard this many times, but they're like classic stories. (laughs) So I can't resist. (laughs) One of them, and this is really a classic, (laughs) one of them, a friend of mine told me this story about his grandfather and his father traveling, riding in a car on December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day. You know, so they're riding in the car listening to the radio and the announcer comes on interrupting the program, the Japanese just bombed Pearl Harbor, you know, in the beginning of World War II. <clears throat> and the first thing his grandfather said to his father was, Don't tell your mother. <laughs> <laughs> World War II would be a big one to keep out. <laughs> but don't upset your mother. <laughs> so it's, it's such a funny story. On some level, we all do that. You know, maybe not to that extent. There's just another story of a friend of mine who was, this is in a way more personally, you know, poignant a friend was in the hospital uh, having surgery and they were trying to uh, take some blood, you know, for blood tests. And <clears throat> the doctor or whoever was, was trying to take blood and they were trying to find the vein, you know, and they were having a hard time finding the vein. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but it's it's not pleasant, you know, where they keep jabbing. And, and so my, my friend was getting pretty... You know, woozy and and whoever it was that was taking the blood just looked at her and said, "What's the matter? It doesn't hurt." You know, and it was just it was just an example of. I mean, it, it's not that it was a bad person. It's just the tendency of not wanting to let in the suffering of another. You know, it was too uncomfortable in that moment, at least for that person to actually open to the suffering that was happening, you know, and so just defend it in that, oh, no, it doesn't hurt, you know, by way of denial. And it's just very instructive for us to look in our own lives of the different ways we do this. <coughs> Mary Oliver, who is, as most of you know, is this, just totally wonderful poet. Uh, she wrote a poem somewhat about this. It's, she, it's called Beyond the Snow Belt. And I'll just read some lines from it. Over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. And scarved and smiling citizens once more sweep down their easy paths of pride and welcome. And what else might we do? Let us be truthful. Two counties north, 
the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away, a land of trees, a wing upon a map, a wild place never visited, so we forget with ease each far mortality. How shall examples move us from our calm? I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. I think it's such a meaningful poem, especially in this era when we hear so much news of so many disasters from all over the world. How can we relate to this? I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. So the question for us is, how can we begin to practice loving those two counties north, or three countries south, or people across the oceans? We need to start with ourselves and the people closest to us so that it doesn't just become some idealistic or sentimental, conceptual uh, experience. It's really a training of the heart. How can we open to the suffering that's around us? We need to start right here where we can feel it most immediately most intimately. We start with ourselves, we start with the people closest to us. And as you have seen by now, a lot of meditation practice has to do with training ourselves to open to the difficulties that arise instead of pulling back, instead of withdrawing, instead of avoiding, instead of defending against. We just practice again and again entering into the difficulty, being willing to feel it, being willing to feel the suffering. It might be physical pain or discomfort. It might be really difficult, painful emotions. What do we do with them? Do we push them away? Do we pull back? Or can we settle in to the experience of them? Compassion arises when we come close to suffering, when we allow ourselves to come close. So this is our practice. No anger arises, fear arises. At one point in my practice, I was going through a lot of very intense fear. And it was primal. I mean, it, was, it wasn't, wasn't fear of anything uh, in particular. There was so much fear, I was afraid to go from sitting to standing. You know, it was, so it was, it was completely irrational. So on some very primal, energetic level. And this was going on, I was, these waves of fear would come. And I would be noting fear, 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 fear. I was locked in. But at a certain point, something shifted, and I realized that all that noting of fear was not mindfulness at all. I was noting fear, and I was really meaning go away. 
you know, I don't like this. But at a certain point, I was actually doing walking meditation right outside here. I was doing walking meditation, and this was after days, something shifted. And I came to a level of acceptance that got articulated in my mind, in the thought, with the thought, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that was the first moment that I genuinely accepted it. If it's here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And it was amazing, because in that moment of acceptance, the whole feeling washed through. Instead of it being locked in by my resistance to it, the openness to it, the acceptance of it, allowed it to move. Not that fear hasn't come back at different times, but the relationship to it has shifted dramatically. So our practice is to let things in. That's what we're practicing. Coming close to whatever is arising. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's not. And we need to be willing to come close to the suffering. And this is the great gift of mindfulness to compassion. It's in this respect that mindfulness makes compassion possible because It gives us the tool for coming close to the suffering. And when we come close to the suffering, the compassion arises quite spontaneously. Now this move towards greater compassion uh, happens on different levels. At first, we might have a genuine empathy, you know, for the suffering of others. And when we take a moment in our relationships with people to actually stop our rushing through life, and we take a moment to actually stop and see and feel what another person is going through, even if it's just for a few moments, but we actually do stop and open then quite naturally a feeling of empathy arises because we are feeling what the other person is feeling. Compassion and bodhicitta take this empathy a step further because it's not simply to stop and be with and feel with another person. Bodhicitta and compassion involves a strong motivation to respond, to act in some way. And Thich Nhat Hanh expressed this so well, kind of summed up this essence of compassion when he said, compassion is a verb. That's, that gets at the heart of that energy. You know, it's, it's to feel the suffering and then that urge, how can I help, what can I do? Developing this aspiration of bodhicitta means that we practice an active engagement with the suffering in the world. Responding to the needs of beings in whatever ways are possible and whatever ways are appropriate for us. And sometimes it's in very small and even unregarded ways. 
You know, maybe it's just being a little kinder, you know, to the people around us. Maybe it's just a moment of generosity. A really good, a good uh, practice is to take these moments of generosity or kindness for people with people who are being really difficult. You know, because our tendency is not to want to be kind and generous in that moment. I don't know. In the meta, have you gotten to the difficult person yet? Okay, tomorrow. <laughs> Anyway, as you, as you run up a catalog of difficult people in your lives, when you go home, you might just see what happens if you give them a gift. You know, it's not easy to do, but it's amazing. I've practiced this at times. It's amazing how it can transform the energy, the relationship. So sometimes this compassionate response is just in these very small ways. Sometimes it manifests in acts of tremendous determination, you know, in really heroic ways. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Dr. Paul Farmer. Um, He's a doctor who has done a lot of work originally in Haiti uh, with AIDS and TB and then in many places around the world and has just done remarkable work in this a wonderful book of uh, about his life um, by a local New Englander, uh, Tracy Kidder, uh, who's won the Pulitzer Prize. The book is called Mountains Beyond Mountains, and it's it's a very inspiring book about Paul Farmer's work. And in one story in this book, uh, it just recounts this situation where people were were criticizing Farmer. And when he was when he was working in Haiti, because sometimes he would walk for hours and hours and hours to treat just a few families, and people were saying, "You know, if you stayed in the clinic, you could treat so many more people." And so, why, you know, why are you wasting your time like that? So this is what he wrote, and it just it's so moving to me. <clears throat> he said, "If you say that seven hours walk." is too long to walk for two families of patients. You're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. You know, and it's just so true. And what's so touching to me is, certainly in myself and I think for many of us, we fall into that pattern. Some lives mean less than others, you know, and that's the root of all that's wrong with the world. So can we practice? And it takes a practice. It's a difficult practice. It's not easy, you know, to practice opening so we really can take it all in. So sometimes there's these acts just of tremendous determination. Sometimes we see compassion and bodhicitta manifest in acts of tremendous courage. Just last night I was was seeing, uh, watching some of the funeral for uh, Coretta Scott King, and uh, it was was very moving, and a lot of people were speaking. 
Uh, and of course, there were a lot of references and memories about Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, when you think of the immense amount of courage that he had in leading some of those marches, you know, in Birmingham and Chicago and in Memphis, you know, finally when he was killed, but in the face of immense hatred, just to be walking through that from a place of love, from a place of compassion, it's amazing. You know, so sometimes when compassion is strong, you know, when it really has been cultivated, you know, and is strong, it has this tremendous power. You know, or we think of the Buddha, because it's in the far distant uh, past, but if you reflect on his life, and, you know, here's a being who spent lifetimes motivated by the wish to alleviate the suffering of beings, not only uh, the particular situations of suffering, but someone who is devoted to understanding the root causes of suffering. What is this whole mystery of life, birth and life and death about? You know, what drives us? What causes suffering? Where's the possibility of freedom? You know, and you think of you think of a being like that who devotes lifetime after lifetime to alleviate the suffering of beings. That was the motivation, this great motivation of compassion. I think it's important to realize that there is no prescription for what we should do. There is no hierarchy of compassionate action. We each need to find our own way in this, you know, through our interests, through our talents, through our skills. The field of compassion is limitless. It's the field of suffering beings. And so we each can find our own way in this and manifest and develop compassion in the way that's appropriate for us. On retreat, in a very simple way, but a powerful way, you know, as strengthening bodhicitta, strengthening compassion. You know, if if it inspires you at the beginning of the day or the beginning of a sitting, you might sit just with the aspiration. You know, may my practice be for the benefit, for the welfare of all beings. You just make that. Make that little aspiration. Or at the end of a sitting, or the end of the day, you know, and this is quite a traditional Buddhist practice, the dedication of merit. You know, all kind of the wholesome forces which we've cultivated in a sitting or a day, we dedicate. So at the end, we, we might just say in our minds, in our hearts, may the merit of my practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, the liberation of all beings. And we need to start very small. And we do this in a very humble way. This is a huge thing. If we plant the seed of bodhicitta, the motivation and the intention that our practice and our lives 
be for the benefit of all. Or even if we just have the aspiration to do this. You know, we just think, yes, this is a good idea. And the Dalai Lama, in one of his classic remarks, said, I can't really begin to practice bodhicitta, but deep inside of me, I know that it's of great value. <laughs> so this is the Dalai Lama who manifests <laughs> you know, to this incredible degree. But I think we need to undertake it with this humility, you know, so it doesn't become a grandiose idea. It's just we're planting a seed and we're watering the seed. If we do this slowly, the seed grows and it takes root in our lives. And even in those times when we're not acting from that place, when the old habit patterns are playing themselves out as they will countless times, you know, even when we're not acting from this place of compassion or bodhicitta, still it can be the reference point for reminding us that there are other choices, that there are other possibilities. So I'd just like to close with uh, a few lines from Thoreau about the power of planting seeds. Now we plant the seed of compassion, of bodhicitta, of insight, of wisdom. Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. You know, it's so apt. You know, and Thoreau was such a great observer of the natural world. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. So what we're doing here together is just planting these seeds and we water them and we nurture them. And they begin to then manifest in the way we live. Let's sit for a few minutes. This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Insight Meditation Society on February 8, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.